From Michigan Radio, this is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, the lingering aftershocks of 9-11 for Michigan's Arab and Muslim communities. The number of hate crimes against Muslims rose dramatically after 9-11, but it's worth noting that hate crimes against Muslims still haven't gone down. Also, one artist reckons with those experiences and invites others to share their stories. Even while we're talking about and expressing the response to tragedy or trauma, we're also able to remember the life force of music and poetry and beauty. And what the murder of a young nursing student in Michigan can tell us about the shortcomings of protections for survivors of domestic violence. The legal system is weighing the need for immediate action against the need for due process. Those stories coming up today on Stateside. Welcome to Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, a Michigan murder that casts light on a patchwork system of laws covering guns and restraining orders. She began to express feelings of wanting to put a little bit of distance between them. And as she did, his actions became increasingly sort of possessive and violent. That story later in today's show. But first, we are 20 years and a few days removed from the attacks of September 11, 2001, which left nearly 3,000 people dead and led to major changes in how this country looked at some of its own. Surveillance of Muslims in America ramped up after news that the hijackers claimed to have been acting in the name of Islam. Although the hijackers' interpretation of the faith was unrecognizable to mainstream Muslims, many Muslims in America came under scrutiny from their neighbors and their government. Michigan Radio's Beanish Ahmed joins us now to talk about the lingering impact of surveillance on Muslims in Michigan. Hey, Beanish, welcome back. Hey, thanks. I would say that anyone of a certain age could tell you where they were on 9-11. What were some of the first thoughts that the people you spoke to had to share? So I talked to a few different people about their experiences. All of them are from Dearborn. All of them are Muslim and Arab American. And they said that their feelings were probably just like anyone else's in the country when they saw news of the attacks on the World Trade Center. Just shock at what happened, sadness over all the lives lost. But what was different for them is having this additional feeling that crept up soon after. The sense that the hijackers had acted in the name of Islam had hijacked their faith. And so they, as Muslims, would face sort of a backlash. Abid Ayub is one of those people. He works for the Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee now, but in 2001, he was a college student, and he says the backlash began for him on the day after 9-11. When I pulled into the parking lot at University of Michigan-Dearborn that morning, I went to take a parking spot, and somebody cut me off, took the parking spot. He just looked at me, walked up to the window, spit in my face, and said, this isn't your parking spot, this isn't your country, go back to where you came from. The number of hate crimes against Muslims rose dramatically after 9-11, but it's worth noting that hate crimes against Muslims still haven't gone down to numbers before the attacks. Yeah. There was this sense early on among some Arab Americans and Muslims that they were subject to additional scrutiny, as, as we heard on the show last week. How did that start to manifest in official channels? Yeah, so we started to see some trade-offs. There was an encroachment on civil liberties in exchange for national security. And, you know, there was a lot of talk in those days about how there might be terrorist sleeper cells, how the next attack might be what was called homegrown. Uh, so a lot of people, especially Arab Americans and Muslims, 
they were subjected to a lot of surveillance and heightened security, even if they were citizens. So right after 9-11, there were these interviews conducted by the FBI, supposedly voluntary, but agents would just drop in on people's homes and jobs. In Dearborn, community leaders banded together right away to say that those interviews had to be requested by letter so people could prepare, could get a lawyer. But, you know, that was just the start of a lot of changes in policies. The Patriot Act, which was passed that October, it gave the FBI broad powers to investigate people in the U.S., and a number of similar policies followed. Men from Muslim-majority countries were required to go in for regular fingerprinting and interviews. They faced deportation if they didn't go in or if an immigration official thought they were a threat. So there was really a shift in how Muslim Americans were perceived and how they felt. According to Rana Almir, she's the acting director of the ACLU of Michigan, the heightened surveillance of Muslims, it hasn't stopped since. Our mosques were infiltrated by informants. We were and are and continue to be religiously and racially profiled by law enforcement. We're watchlisted. And many of our charities that we supported at the time have been shut down, again, through discriminatory policies and practices. You know, as communities, as as Americans, as as humans, we can't see all of this. We can't endure the degradation of suspicion and discrimination and not be affected in deep ways. Elmir said it's hard to know how much surveillance is still going on since it's all kept confidential in the interest of national security. But the impact of it, the feeling of that added security, it's still there for a lot of Muslims in America. What have you observed of how some of these policies have have had an effect on the lives of, of individual Michiganders? Yeah, so one person who was impacted by that additional surveillance and scrutiny is Nasser Beydoun. He's a business owner from Dearborn, and he says he didn't have any kind of record or history that he feels would merit this. But after 9-11, Beydoun says that he was stopped and searched almost every time he tried to fly. He told me that TSA agents would tell him that he had been randomly selected for those searches, but it happened so often that he just didn't think it was random. Here's how he described it. What caused me to finally say enough is enough is one day I was crossing over from Canada with my daughter to take her to a birthday party. And we were held for about five hours and interrogated. And, you know, no food, no water, separated from my child. His daughter was about 10 years old at the time, and he says that that experience, being detained and not being able to talk to her, it was really hard for him. A terrorist watch list and no-fly list were created a couple years after 9-11, and when Beidoun tried to get his name off of that list, it didn't work. And he just felt like his rights as an American citizen were being violated, so he sued the government. What happened? What was the outcome of the case? The case ended in 2017. The court ruled against Beidoun and a co-plaintiff of his. The judges who heard the case thought that being subjected to additional scrutiny when flying um, or, or held at the border was just not a violation of civil liberties. But you know what happened to Nasser Beidoun is really telling. For years, he's been a part of this organization called Bridges that's meant to bolster the relationship between the Arab community and federal law enforcement agencies. So Bridges came about right after 9-11 out of a need to have, you know, this kind of channel communication, this mutual understanding on issues like surveillance. So here's the kicker. 
Beidoun told me that he had a personal relationship with the head of Customs and Border Patrol through Bridges while he was being surveilled, and that despite that, he wasn't able to stop the additional scrutiny he faced. Jeez. What would you say is the result of all of this surveillance? I guess what we're talking about here is the extent to which all these extra measures that meant so many things in people's lives, did all that actually prevent terrorist attacks? Was the encroachment worth it? Yeah, so I actually put that question to Rana Elmir of the ACLU of Michigan, and she said that there is, you know, still so much that we don't know about the extent of surveillance. But she gave me one example of a surveillance program that we actually have some information about. So it was put into place by the NYPD in 2002, and it targeted Muslims and people from what the police department called ancestries of interest, which were Muslim-majority countries and also Black Muslims. And this reached 100 miles beyond New York City, so into New Jersey, into Connecticut. Here's how Elmir described it to me. It included everything from informants infiltrating our mosques to our student organizations at colleges to undercover police officers who were called crawlers, undercover police officers who were actually from the community. So they looked like community members. They spoke the language of community members. And they were tasked with going into cafes, grocery stores, street corners, and essentially mining for gossip. And when that program was revealed, not a single credible piece of evidence that connected to a criminal investigation was discovered. So the fact that not a single credible terrorist threat arose from years of that full-on surveillance, that's by the NYPD's own admission. Elmir says that this example shows that the kind of intense surveillance of Muslims was not justified, in her opinion. But of course, there's so much that we don't know about surveillance because by necessity it's confidential. So we don't have a lot of information about attacks that may have been thwarted and never reported. But one point I want to add here is that a lot of would-be terrorists or violent extremists from Muslim communities, they actually were reported on by community members, religious leaders, family members. So there's a sense in the community that it's kind of policing its own on this issue to some extent. The folks that you spoke to, what would you say this 20th anniversary means for them and the legacy of everything that happened on that day? Well, I think that the sense of being surveilled, of being really conscious of your actions, of, you know, speaking your language in public, in an airport, like that kind of low-grade sense of fear, of checking your actions, the fear of your own government, that's the case for a lot of people. And there's this other side of it, too. Everyone I spoke to said that the events of 9-11 and the backlash that followed, it changed the course of their lives. So Nasser Beydoun, he became an activist, focusing a lot of his energy on work he does now with the American Arab Civil Rights League. Rana Elmir, she was studying journalism at the time, but shifted her focus towards activism after 9-11. Similar story for Abid Ayoub, who we heard from earlier. He was studying communications and marketing, and he changed his career path. He went to law school because he says he wanted to support his community. And Ayoub says that one impact of 9-11 that isn't talked about as much, it's this sort of groundswell of public engagement from Muslims in America, who had kind of been the silent majority before that. Here's Abed. We're seeing community members run for state legislature offices, congressional offices, governors, and even on a local level, city councils, school board members, 
and even getting involved with something as low level as, you know, their homeowners association. So there's a lot more engagement and governance on all levels. And of course, that's not representative of every Muslim person in America or every Muslim in Dearborn, but it seems like 9-11 did change the way in which Muslims in America were seen and also how they see themselves. Michigan Radio's Binish Ahmed. You can read her article online at michiganradio.org. Hey, Binish, thank you so much. Thank you, April. In just a moment, an artist in residency with the Arab American National Museum talks about giving voice to stories about September 11th. Quite immediate backlash that started to happen against Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, anyone who looked Arab, whatever that meant. That's after a short break. We'll be right back. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Telling your own story has power. Hearing the stories of others can also help us come to terms with difficult things that we ourselves have experienced. Andrea Asaf is a Lebanese-American artist, writer, and cultural organizer. And she's doing a residency this fall through the Arab American National Museum in Dearborn. Part of her work involves gathering stories from the community about how the attacks of September 11th and the subsequent security crackdowns changed lives. Part of what makes Asaf so well-suited to this task is a decades-long project she created, sharing spoken word, video, and music surrounding September 11th. Andrea Asaf, welcome to Stateside. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you. Do you mind starting with telling us your 9-11 story, where, where you were and what you were doing? Sure. I was a New Yorker. I was a New Yorker since um, 1991. And um, I moved to New York City uh, when I was 18 years old uh, to study at NYU. And I um, lived in the East Village. I happened to be out of town that day because I was signing a contract in DC for what ironically would become my first job working remotely, (laughs) which was a very new thing at that time in 2001. This was 20 years ago. (laughs) 20 years ago, yes. Um, So I was in Washington, D.C. on 9-11, and I could see the smoke from the Pentagon uh, from the window of where I was staying. And I had to watch what was happening in New York City on television as of all the shutdowns that happened immediately Uh, After 9-11, I wasn't able to go home to my apartment until September 17th. But the the aftermath lingered for a very long time. And by that, I mean everything from um, the rubble and smoke and ash in the city to the quite immediate backlash that started to happen against um, Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, anyone who looked Arab, whatever that meant. Um, And it was very difficult to be both a New Yorker, a New Yorker and an Arab American um, in that post 9-11 moment. And I was a young emerging artist and it forever marked my work as an artist and my identity. When you realized what was happening, what did it do to your sense of security, either as a person who was standing in Washington, D.C., and, you know, probably could 
you know, could see some of what was going on at the Pentagon or, you know, just being aware of what was happening in New York and thinking of friends and things who were in the city. And also, did it occur to you right away that Arab Americans were going to become a target? That's a great question and complex. I would say there were kind of realizations in in waves. I mean, of course, the first thing was just the shock, absolute um, disorientation and shock, because I was looking out my window at smoke rising from the Pentagon and droves of people, um, you know, walking and running from downtown. and I turned on the television expecting to see Washington DC on TV. And instead I saw the towers collapse in New York. And so there was this moment of complete confusion and shock. And it took a while for the tragedy of it, I think, to register. Um, but being an artist, one of the first things I did was when I got my wits together, I took a video camera and went out on the street and started talking to people and seeing what they were feeling. And then pretty quickly started to hear some people talk about revenge. And so it began to dawn on me, I would say within the first 24 hours that the Middle East was, and Middle Eastern people were going to be the targets. Yeah. You started writing poems to to process Mm -hmm. what had happened. And then eventually these these were these came off the page in a live performance setting uh, with yes. with performances that that originated in 2011. How did how did a live performance change the way that people received what you were writing? Oh, I, w- I would say completely because, uh, well, I always write orally, you know, I, I'm influenced by spoken word and performance poetry, and I'm trained as an actor uh, first. So everything I write, I always um, intend to be spoken aloud. Um, But the experiment of the show was to see what would happen if I take this kind of very American, US, New York aesthetic that I work in of spoken word and experimental theater, and invite people who play Middle Eastern music forms to collaborate with me. Could these forms talk to each other? Um, and and they actually, they, they do quite well. And I also knew that um, a media design had to be part of it because the media was so much a part of the experience of both 9-11 and the wars that followed and the backlash against Arab and Middle Eastern Americans and Muslim Americans, so and people globally, I should say. So um, I think the the poems, which initially were somewhat full of mourning and despair, I would say, were given a kind of life and breath and even joy sometimes by the music that deeply changed how the piece is experienced and. and the music has been a very important component ever since. People can get a sense of this if we if we play a bit of a clip from materials that that you've posted online. And I wanted I wanted to ask if we could ask you to set up the opening poem. The first poem in the series is called Down. And it's really the 
moment of that day. And quite honestly, I can't remember if I wrote it that day or sometime in September. The first poem captures the sense of shock and um, disorientation and the notion that there was a before and that the after will be forever different. The idea of, I didn't have the language for it then, but what I know now is intrusive memory, uh, the way a tragic event replays itself in your mind and sometimes interrupts other thoughts and you can't always control um, when you see that moment replayed. So the first piece is really about responding to the, the initial response, the emotional state of 9-11 um, before all the other implications and aftermath begin to sink in. And in this clip, you'll hear um, Alem Basaldi on violin. I was trying to remember the beginning of September and everything that came before. I was blank. For the first few moments, just void. I blinked at the white down someone else's blanket I'd been under for days. I was trying to remember the beginning of September and everything that came before the shattered glass, the acrid smell of asbestos and flesh singeing the lungs and soul. I was trying to remember where I had been in the days before and Collapse, of course, and apple pie sliced out of the Pentagon and tearing the screen to lean out the window so that I could see what was smoking. I was trying to remember the beginning of September, but I couldn't see past it. I couldn't see the past of it. I... For those first few moments, under the down, If you're just joining us today, my guest is Andrea Asaf, who is the founding artistic and executive director of Art to Action, Inc. She's doing a virtual residency right now with the Arab American National Museum in Dearborn. And this is from her project, 11 Reflections on September. Um, Andrea, you, you kind of hinted at this when we were talking about it before, but 9-11 was such a traumatic experience for so many people. And the things that happened because of 9-11 brought so much trauma into people's lives. When you were in the process of writing, did you think much about ways of retelling that didn't just double down on that trauma? Yes, absolutely. I think about this a lot. Um, as a theater artist, how do we um, talk about traumatic events without re-traumatizing the people that sometimes we most want to um, do the work for or whose voices we want to uplift. And um, it's a very delicate line to walk as an artist, um, whether you're talking about war 
or um, violence or sexual violence, um, it's very it, it's very difficult to know where that line is. Um, and that's why I always try to find a balance of, I would say, truth telling and beauty in my work. And sometimes moments of humor or at least absurdism <laughs> um, so that uh, even while we're talking about and expressing the response to tragedy or trauma, we're also able to remember um, the life force of music and poetry and beauty and laughter because all of those things are true. Even in the midst of war, all of those things are still true. Also, I've developed a practice of working with um, community partners and service providers, such as social workers or therapists, and inviting them to be present in the audience and um, available uh, for anyone who needs to talk after, and kind of giving people permission to break the, um, the, the mores of theater, if you will, like to, if you need to get up and leave, it's okay. If you need to go take a breath and breathe fresh air and come back into the room, you're welcome to come back and um, let people know that they don't, they don't have to feel trapped in this experience, that they have agency in this experience. And having a dialogue after every performance uh, in the live version is extremely important to me. I consider the, the performance as act one and the dialogue with the audience as act two. Um, of course, in the digital space, that's much um, more difficult to replicate, although uh, we have been um, offering a monthly session of what we call reflection sessions that is on the um, second Tuesday of each month that you can join free online if you want to talk about some of these themes and share stories and experiences. There's a pretty amazing line in that poem that reads, there's a new enemy the cowboy says, reinventing the Indian yet again, but the cowboy always stays the same. As we've been at this moment, you know, on the on the 20th anniversary, it feels like a lot of people have been looking back at the history and everything that happened domestically and internationally and saying, you know, we just, we couldn't have known. We just couldn't have known. How did those reflections hit with you? Um, you know, that's, it's very interesting. Um, a lot of people talk about 9-11 as a kind of loss of innocence. Um, I think for a lot of people, um, communities of color, including, you know, Arab American or Minasa or um, Swanasa, depending how you want to say it, <laughs> uh, communities, uh, we weren't always that innocent. I think a lot of people could have predicted and in fact did predict what would happen. I think of Noam Chomsky, for example, I think of, um, you know, Edward Said and um, people who have written uh, about U.S. military intervention in the Middle East and in other countries and regions around the world. Um, I think that the gap between what mainstream media communicated to people and certainly what politicians communicated, uh, it was quite a large gap. And, um, you know, 
this question of what was knowable and what was not is actually very complex. But I think now, looking back over the last two decades, is, is a moment to not just commemorate the loss of life, but to really start to unpack the truth. And by truth, I mean the impact of mm-hmm. what we have done as a nation in the world and what it's done to other people in the countries we've been involved in and in our own country. Um, it's time for us to have honest conversations about that. And I hope that this work that I'm doing is is a catalyst for those conversations. Andrea, in the midst of all this, you're also doing a virtual residency uh, with the Arab American National Museum in Dearborn. First of all, I have to ask, a lot of people's residencies went sideways because of the pandemic. What, is, what does a virtual residency mean in this case? That's a great question. I feel like we kind of are inventing the answer to it as we go along. Um, right now, uh, of course, the, the museum is screening the digital film as part of the Arab film series and actually will be recording a discussion with Lubana Alcantar, myself, uh, facilitated by Lebanese-American playwright and um, uh, actress Leila Buck. Um, and that'll be available online with the film uh, from the 13th through September 16th. And um, we've also put out a call, um, a national call for video submissions and video stories, really for anyone who has a post 9-11 story that they'd like to share. The Arab American National Museum is hosting uh, an online submission form and you can, it's a Google form. You can just go on and uh, log in and um, share a story. And that story will be immediately part of the archive of the Arab American National Museum. So we hope to kind of gather uh, more stories about this post 9-11 era from lived experience and and really um, document it and build an archive in that way. Uh, so it it's really an honor to be in relationship with the museum in this way. And we hope very much that the virtual residency be, will become a live in-person one down the road when it's safe again. We're going to let you go, but how long do people have to get involved in the oral history project? Um, really... Uh, that's a great question. I want to leave it up as long as people are interested in interacting with it. Um, certainly through the end of September, we'd love to ha- continue to have submissions all through the fall and um, leave it up through the end of the year. So you can go to the Arab American National Museum or arttoaction.org and um, find out how to participate. Andrea Asaf, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for talking to us about all this. Thank you so much for having me. We need to take a break, but in just a moment, we'll bring you the story of one young Michigan man who killed his girlfriend just weeks after she won a temporary protective order against him. Research shows that when guns are removed uh, from dangerous people during dangerous times, uh, it, it often saves lives. We'll be right back. You're with Stateside. I'm April Baer. Last week, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals rejected a due process claim filed in the name of Rosemarie Riley. She died in 2016 while she was a nursing student at Grand Valley State University, shot to death by her longtime boyfriend, Jeremy Kelly. 
They were high school sweethearts, but as their relationship turned dark, Riley sought and won a temporary protective order against Kelly. But that legal protection was not enough. Ann Givens followed this case through the courts. She's a reporter with The Trace, a nonprofit news service that covers gun issues in America, and she joins us now. Ann, welcome to Stateside. Thank you so much. Rosemary Riley and Jeremy Kelly met in high school. At what point did things start to go sideways with their relationship? Uh, they met in high school, and I think for several years their relationship uh, went on quite the way that most uh, relationships go in high school. Uh, they loved each other quite a bit. And then Rosemary went to school, uh, nursing school at Grand Valley State. They were apart for a little while, and then he moved to Grand Rapids to be close to her. I think even there, things were good for a time, and then they took a turn for the worse as Rosemary began thinking about exploring other uh, romantic options or perhaps that he was not going to be the soulmate that she had once envisioned him to be. They decided, or, or he decided, that they were going to move into a trailer kind of far from town in late summer of 2016. And then by October, she'd filed a temporary protective order against him. What, what brought that on? Um, I, I think increasingly she began to uh, express feelings of wanting to put a little bit of distance between them. And as she did, his uh, actions became increasingly sort of possessive and violent. Um, and the thing that uh, precipitated uh, the her going to petition for a protective order, uh, it was a couple of things. One was there was an incident where he held a gun to her head um, and then uh, separately shot into the ground of that uh, trailer park that I mentioned in the story. Uh, and then shortly before she went to the protective order office, uh, he, they had an argument where he hit her and it left her with uh, a broken nose or a, a, a swollen face. Uh, and her mother uh, saw her shortly after that and discovered it. And the family, over the next few days, convinced her to go and get a protective order. Rosemary, who went by Rose sometimes with her friends and family, Rose told the judge in her statement that Jeremy had threatened to shoot her. And can you explain what happens in Michigan when somebody is seeking a temporary protective order, what a lot of us call a restraining order, and, and there are guns in the picture? Sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a really uh, interesting uh, picture nationwide and in Michigan, and one that frankly surprised me as a reporter. Um, I think the first thing that's important to say is that the days after a person uh, get, receives a restraining order tend to be the most, among the most dangerous in any abusive relationship. One study actually showed that among people who are killed by a partner uh, who have a restraining order, 20% are actually killed in the first two days after uh, they receive that restraining order. Um, so this is a really critical period when we talk about 
protective orders or restraining orders, it really matters uh, what the rules are when we're talking about the temporary orders because those are the ones that are in place first. What we found is that uh, in 29 states, there are no, uh, there is no uh, real sort of way for a person to get a gun restriction on a protective order. There are rare cases where you could, a person could specifically ask for a gun restriction and a judge could manually write it into the protective order, but it's not a box that you check. It's not, um, it, it's not a, a thing that would automatically come up as, um, as something that a person would ask for who is feeling endangered. Uh, now, there are 13 additional states where that decision is left in the hands of a judge. Do we know why the judge decided not to order Jeremy Kelly to surrender his weapons? You know, I spoke to the judge, and uh, I also found when I looked at that period, this was Kent County, when I looked at that period, it was actually fairly rare for people who testified in writing that the person that they wanted the order against had a gun and had threatened them with a gun. Um, even in those cases, it was very rare for the gun to be uh, removed or even for the judge to check the box that ordered that the, ju- that the gun be removed. So in Kent County in that month, there were 31, I believe they were all women, who testified on their petition that their partner had a gun and had threatened them with it. And of those 31 women, only nine received uh, the order that said that the, their partners were restricted or, or their abusers were restricted from having the guns. What is a temporary protective order really saying? If, if it doesn't require someone to give up their firearms, what does it compel the recipient to do? Well, it's a good question. And I, I will say here that there's sort of a whole other um, a whole other issue across the nation, which is when there uh, when there are requirements to give up guns, what is the process to to remove those guns? And those range from you know many many places where there is no process to uh, a few places where there actually is a very comprehensive um, and thorough process of removing the guns. So. Um, Essentially, removing the guns is a is a whole second question. Uh, but in terms of with no gun restriction, the protective orders tend to to outline certain restrictions uh, with regard to the person coming near the uh, the petitioner, contacting the petitioner. It, you know, it really can vary. It it can extend to the petitioner's children or their workplace, but um, it is really more of a, um, a uh, restriction on contact, I would say. If you're just joining us, we're talking today with Ann Givens. She's a reporter for The Trace, a nonprofit newsroom covering gun violence. So that is not, in fact, what ended up happening. Jeremy Kelly kept on harassing and stalking Rose Riley. And eventually, things got to a point where police felt like they had enough evidence piled up that they really did need to arrest him. Unfortunately, they didn't go pick him up right away. I want to talk more about that in a minute. But 
what happened was that he shot and killed Rosemary Riley. You note that there are 29 states in which temporary protective orders do not automatically cover firearms. And Michigan is one of 13 that puts that decision in a judge's hand. Is there anything that you feel like you learned about why a judge does or does not order firearms relinquished in these situations? Sure. I mean, what we found, uh, we looked at uh, four different states and uh, that, that are among those 13 where the decision is left in the hands of a judge. And what we found was really a wide range. Uh, it, I guess what, what I would say is it depended where you lived and what judge heard your case more than it depended what the evidence was that you were in danger, uh, whether or not you received the restriction. So uh, even in Michigan, we looked at uh, three different counties. Uh, In one county, everybody, almost every single one we looked at, the person got the restriction, whether they asked for it or not. That was the policy there. Um, During the time period we looked at in Kent, there were very few people that asked for the restriction and presented evidence that were then given it. Uh, we looked at a third county where there was very little correlation. So a lot of people asked for a restriction and didn't get it. A lot of people didn't ask for a restriction and got it anyway. So um, I think that the important thing, and, and, and that trend really um, translated to several other states that we looked at as well. Um, and I, so I think the important thing to note is just that there is very little consistency. Uh, Often there are no rules or even guidelines uh, giving judges ideas um, of in what cases they should should implement a restriction and in what cases they should not. Um, And very little training. So um, there are certainly people who would say that that these are important decisions and a judge should look at everyone. but to that end, I would say um, in many cases where that is happening, where, where it is left up to a judge, there's just not a lot of guidance or um, uniformity into how they make the decisions. Jeremy Kelly had put a gun to his own head several times, but that was not in Rose Riley's written narrative. Do you think that that would have made a difference if she had put that in there? You know, the judge, I spoke to the judge, and he said that it made a difference. Um, He said, you know, the narrative is meaning the actual sort of the fill in the blank uh, portion of the protective order where the person is writing, you know, what happened to them that made them fearful is very important. And if you're going to check the box that I've, that says, I've been threatened with a gun, then that needs to be part of the narrative. Uh, When I spoke to domestic violence advocates and experts, what they said is um, people who are truly in abusive relationships often are not able to think clearly about what is their strongest evidence, their have undergone a lot of trauma. A lot of the time, the thing that is clearest in their mind is the thing that happened most recently and not always the thing that was legally the most damaging to 
the person that they're asking for the order against. So um, one thing that some places have done that seems to be effective is they do have advocates uh, who will help people fill out their petitions and make sure that the most compelling and important evidence is included. And when there are inconsistencies, you know, perhaps ask the person about those. Uh, also, some judges um, uh, will actually sort of circle back, even on a even on a temporary order, will circle back and make sure that they have um, followed up on anything that seems to be inconsistent before they deny, uh, say, a firearms restriction. You know, one of the things that I come away with from all this is just wondering, how does it happen that these things transpire without a judge having spoken with one or both people involved in the temporary protective order? I think that's very common. I think that my sense is that the legal system is weighing the uh, the need for immediate action in some of these cases against the need for due process. Um, and in these temporary orders, I guess that really comes into play. Uh, so if you are talking about the two-week or 10-day period, depending on the place, until both parties can stand in front of a judge and tell their side uh, what is going to be be the paramount factor? Is it going to be the safety of the one person and the potential for them to be harmed or killed? Or is it going to be the gun rights of the person uh, who, who the order is being taken out against? And, you know, frankly, there's, there's disagreement there. Rose's parents, the Rileys, filed a lawsuit against Ottawa County. They say that when the police had enough evidence to arrest Jeremy Kelly, they should have gone and physically got him, but they didn't do that. They mailed him the arrest warrant and asked him to turn himself in. Can you tell us what happened next? So what the Rileys told me is that this was after a period of just constant stress uh, for Rosemary where um, she was being called... Uh, Jeremy was calling her dozens of times a day and she was fearful that he was following her and uh, felt uncomfortable anytime she was uh, out with friends. He had said that he was going out of town on this particular weekend and that for the first time she felt comfortable and like maybe things were moving in a better direction. Uh, she went out with friends. She was over uh, at, a, at a friend's house. And Jeremy, very late, early in, early in the morning actually, showed up, uh, grabbed her, pulled her outside, uh, shot her, and then killed himself. So uh, unfortunately, it was in this moment where the family finally was feeling a little bit more at ease about, about where things were, that they actually were in the most danger. Now, the Ottawa County Sheriff's Department has said in legal filings and through its spokesperson that the deputies did not have the authority to take Jeremy Kelly's guns. Is that true? 
You know, I, I don't want to pretend to be an expert on this exactly, but I will tell you um, that sort of broadly, that is my understanding. And that is why the protective orders do sort of give this one um, window where it would be possible to remove guns from a dangerous person uh, in a very dangerous person, sorry, in a very dangerous time for an abused person, uh, that other other recourses for removing firearms exist, but that they're quite limited. I just want to ask, do you feel like we know what's going on here. When things, when things get to the point of a homicide, is it because events in the relationship have reached an irrevocable crisis point? Or is there something that U.S. laws are missing about temporary protective orders and guns? These cases are so complicated, and there are so many things that have to go right uh, to save a person who is in danger in this way. So can I say that if the judge had checked the box for Rosemary Riley, she would be alive today? Absolutely not. I cannot say that. Uh, because then there would have been to, had to be a um, comprehensive process to go collect the gun from Jeremy Kelly. Uh, but I think we need to look at the things that can be done and that do sometimes help. And this uh, research shows that this is one of them, that when guns are removed uh, from dangerous people during dangerous times, uh, it, it often saves lives. Ann Givens is a reporter for The Trace, a nonprofit newsroom covering gun violence. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And that's Stateside for today. I'm April Bear. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you tomorrow. 